Bibles to Luke 21st chapter and the 31st verse. We're still studying the parable of the fig tree. This is within the context of the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse is part of the, uh, it, it is the most extended prophetic uh, instruction that the Lord himself gave us when he's walking on this earth. And it's uh, a summary. The disciples said, tell us, when will be the sign of your coming? What What's going to be the sign of the end of the age? And he's gone through and he's given an explanation about what was going to happen to them in the first century. Included in that, in the Matthew, Mark, Luke parallels, we find out information of what the first century church needed to prepare for, what the, what the church itself needed to prepare for, and then also for the tribulation and great tribulation and the return of the Lord at the second advent. Instructions given that are applicable to different time frames, and so we have to rightly divide the word of truth. That's what, uh, what we're exhorted to do, to study to show yourself approved unto God as workmen that did not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing or handling accurately the word of truth. That means we need to put it together with, with the proper hermeneutics. We need to see how the puzzle pieces fit together. There is a big overall view of prophecy, and you have to have the overall view to be able to fit in the little details. And these are some of the details, and they, they all work together. I'm reminded of the passage in Hebrews 5, not Hebrews, Matthew 5, when the Lord said that heaven and earth will pass away, but not one word of mine will pass away. Whenever he, whenever he uh, makes a statement, it's all going to happen. How does he reveal himself? Literally with some figurative language. And when we realize that, we, we can make, make some progress in the understanding of prophecy. Some people say prophecy is not important. I've, I've ran into that uh, several times. Well, don't even teach it. It's too divisive. Or don't even teach it. Nobody can understand it. And a third of the Bible is prophecy. And if all scripture is God-breathed, then, then that means prophecy is important. It's all God-breathed, and it's important for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. Especially when you find yourself living in the part of the age that is close to the Lord's return. And we're going to see why you would even say a statement like that, close to the return of the Lord at the rapture. And part of it is found right here in the parable of the fig tree. And these, these verses we're going to cover to this week and probably next week. So it's important because the Holy Spirit's role is to reveal the Lord to us and things to come, John 16, 13. So if you want to study prophecy, you have to rely on the Holy Spirit to help you put together the puzzle pieces to see how it all fits. So that means we need to go in front of the throne of grace again. We need to ask the Lord to be our, our teacher, the Holy Spirit. Show us what, how this all fits together. And then, how then should we live? What do we do about it in the generation we find ourselves? Uh, I, we're not supposed to go into a cave and hide out. I can tell you that. We need to proclaim it from the rooftop that the Lord is the Lord and one day he's coming back. And this time he's not going to be happy. So get, get ready. Let's pray. Father, again, we're blessed and privileged and we can't thank you enough for our so great salvation. Father, we know it is not of ourselves. It is not of works because we would boast about it. But Father, it's all by grace through faith and that faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for all of your goodness. We thank you for our so great salvation. And Father, we thank you for your word because your word is truth. And your word is going to come to pass, every single part of it. So I pray, Father, that we would be able to understand it and remember it, and that we'd be able to use it so we might be able to discern the signs of the times. We pray that we'll be able to do that so that we might be able to answer questions for others and lead others to, the, to, the, to our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, I'm going to read from verse 29, which says, And he told them a parable, Behold, the fig tree and all the trees. 
Now, <clears throat> here's a command, behold, that means pay attention to. I love commands like that because it says, take a good look at it. It is a word that uh, from a ra'o. Unlike blepo, you means you just glance at something. Hara'o means you stop and take a look at it. Uh, Matthew 24, 32 and Mark 13, 28 says, Learn the parable of the fig tree. This is the only parable that he uses the word montano, which means to learn like a disciple. You're going to have to learn from experience. You're going to have to study this, and you're going to have to see the events unfolding. So when he says, learn the parable of the fig tree, and that's the only time he used that word in regards to a parable, then it says pay attention to this one. So he is giving us some information we need to learn not just intellectually, we need to learn experientially as we watch things come to pass. In verse 30, he says, As soon as they put forth leaves, they as the fig tree and they put forth leaves, you see it. That's blepo. That's the word take a glance at. It's an, you know, Oklahoma, whenever the trees put on leaves, we notice. We usually go to sleep one, one night and wake up the next morning and there they are all over the place, and those vines that eat fences and houses and everything else you can't get rid of once you get them started. But it says, as soon as they put forth leaves, you see it. He's talking about a fig tree. And know for yourselves that the summer is now near. That's the time of, of harvest. The Jews knew what that was. They saw it as a time of harvest. The parallel in Matthew 24 and Mark 13 when its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. And again, summer is the time of the harvest. Now, we left off last week at verse 31. And he says, so you also. As this literally says, in, in this manner indeed you all. I love the Greek because it's good Oklahoman. It's full of you plurals in there it's a you all that's in there and it says so you all also when you see now the word is a subjunctive that's used here that is a word that denotes potential that's a that's a case that denotes potential when you may see it's not it's not that it's not in question that it's going to happen but the when is what's in question so when you might see this happening he's saying What's, what's going to happen to the fig tree? What's going to happen to Jerusalem? The earlier prophecies have said, not one stone's going to be left on top of another. You're going to be dispersed in all the nations. First, the gospel must be preached to all the nations before he comes back. These are things he has already told them about. And he says, when you see these things happening, when you see the fig tree and all the trees coming into existence... Now, last week we identified the fig tree as Israel. Hosea 9.10 is the closest, is the clearest verse that your forefathers were the earliest fruit on the fig tree, talking about the exodus and conquest generation, and the fig tree is that group of people that established political uh, Israel. When you may see these things happening, the word translated happening is a common Greek word, genomai, and it means to come into existence. They're coming into existence. So you're going to learn as a disciple, and he's saying there's going to be a fig tree. It's going to start putting forth its leaves. The literal ones are going to do that. And when you see this coming into existence, starting to happen, because it'll be gone for almost 2,000 years. The fig trees will be gone for almost 2,000 years. When they come back into the land, then they're going to start blooming. He says, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Recognize is gnosko, another common word that we find in the Greek. And it means to know. Just know this. When you see these things happening, when you see the leaves coming back, when you see the fig tree coming back, know that the kingdom, what? The kingdom of God, which we've already seen is the summer. The kingdom of God is the explanation of the, the figurative language of the, the summer. Is near. Egus is, ingus is the proper way to pronounce it. And that means it's drawn, drawn closer. Now, Matthew 24, 33, parallel passage. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that. And you have 
probably in your English translation, he, and it should be it in there. What is the it? The it is the summer. It is near, right at the door. Now, I want to draw attention to this because the word door there is not a singular. Your translations insist on, on translating this as a singular door, and it is not. In the Matthew passage and in the Mark passage, this word thura, which is the word for door, is a plural, even at the doors. Now we have to pay attention because the Holy Spirit knew that he wanted a plural there instead of a singular that's there. Even at the door. The door into what? The door to the summer. The door into the millennial kingdom. The kingdom of God. So he's saying that there's more than one door. Now there is no textual variant. There's no manuscript somewhere that has a singular. None. And we've got thousands of manuscripts, ancient manuscripts, none of them uses a singular in here. And so it's telling us that it is very clear, it is a plural that is used. He is near, the summer is near, even at the doors. Now, these things refer to the leaves on the trees. Okay, that's when he's talking about these things. When you find, it's, it's kind of like when you find a pronoun which we, the Bible still considers good to use. You don't have to pick your pronoun. It picks it for you. And he, she, it, we, you, they, all the pronouns that go with it. You have to identify what noun it is, it is going with. It's one of the rules of grammar. When you find these things, these are indefinite pronouns, and you identify them by the context. The context are the fig tree and the leaves of the trees that are there. It refers to the leaves on the tree. So the kingdom of God here is the summer. Identified, the scripture identifies this time as the summer the, or the time of the literal, physical, millennial kingdom. The king, he says, know that the kingdom of God is near. Then he says, the summer is near. When you see these things happening, he's right at the doors. Now, until it's prophesied destruction of Jerusalem, and dispersion into the nations. The four apostles that are up there on the Mount of Olives with him, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, could look at the fig tree as a symbol of the Lord's return. Okay, they would be around Jerusalem. They'd see the fig trees blossoming, everything going fine, but they see it as a symbol of the Lord's return till 70 A.D., and then they were all destroyed by Titus and the Roman legion. So it would be a reminder to these guys. Now, each sprouting was to remind them of the millennial kingdom. Because when they came out every year and the leaves came on and then the tree bore the fruit under the leaves to begin with, then the, the, these guys, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, should look at that and go, Lord's going to come back. But see, they know the other prophecy too. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Israel will be dispersed in all the nations. Fulfilling prophecies of Ezekiel 36, Joel 2, uh, Jeremiah, other passages. They're going to be sent out. But every time they saw a sprouting there in Jerusalem, they should have said, the Lord will be back. He promised he's going to come back and he's going to plant his millennial kingdom. After the destruction... Believers were to look for Israel's replanting back in the land. Somebody passing through Israel between 70 A.D. and 1948, what should they look for? Fig trees back in the land. What did they not find? Fig trees. They may add a few scraggly ones left around there. That's, that's fine, but there wasn't any fruit. There wasn't any harvest. There wasn't any production that they could find. These, the, this verse does not tell the four disciples that they would overtly see the kingdom of God before they died. You have to stop and think, was he telling them, when you see, when you all see, is he addressing it to them or to us? Because he'd already told these guys that some of you will be killed earlier in the Olivet Discourse. So he's not saying you're going to be around when the millennial kingdom Comes, comes to be. Some people think that the Lord, when he left on the day of Pentecost and ascended up to the Father, that the rapture was imminent. 
uh, every day since. Well, there's a whole lot of things had to happen before the rapture became imminent. Israel had to be dispersed before the rapture became imminent, and Israel had to be regathered before the rapture became imminent. Now, <clears throat> some would be executed under the persecution. And as we know, Peter, Andrew, and James were all killed and executed. John was the only one that died a natural death. Uh, and to me, that's fascinating, and it shows again how exact God's word is. He didn't say all of you would be executed or killed, did he? Some of you. How many? There's only four he's talking to. Okay, what happened to John? Did they try to execute him? Now, let's, let's go to a second for the angelic conflict. What's going on between God and Satan in the invisible world that we can't see going on? What, does Satan want John executed? You bet he does. Just like he didn't want Jesus put on a cross. What? <laughs> when those Jews started yelling, crucify him, you can almost see Satan going, no, 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 no. You're supposed to pick up rocks and stone him. Because the prophecy is about a guy hanging on a tree. I don't want him on a cross. I want rocks thrown at him. All the time the Jews picked up rocks to stone him, didn't they? Because they didn't have the right of capital punishment. They couldn't have put him on a cross. And so whenever the crowds, the Jews are yelling, crucify him, Satan's got to be going, no, you idiots. Not that. Because he wants to prove God wrong somewhere. So what, what does he want with John? He wants John dead. Because then it's not some of you, is it? And he could question whether or not Jesus got it right. Uh, but, and you know what they tried to do to John. Trying to boil him in oil. Tried to kill him that way. Boil him in oil. I just, I want to talk to John when we get to heaven. And say, what was that like, John? Did you really have a little fun? Like Elijah with the prophets of Baal. You could almost see John going, hey, this is cooling off a little bit. <laughs> Can you heat this thing up just a little bit more? I'm, I'm getting cold in here. Uh, I don't know if he did that or not. But there's some things are fun to speculate about. But what we do know is they did try to kill him by a martyr's death. And it didn't work. God protected him. He died a natural death. So anyway, we find that some of them would die. Now, it's directly applicable to believers who see the reality behind the symbols. We're the ones that are supposed to be paying attention to this. When you see all these things happening, they've got to, in the context of the Olivet Discourse, they've got to be dispersed, they've got to come back. Church-age believers will see the reality of the events falling into place. And this is the beginning of birth pangs. When you see wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, false messiahs, and that list he gave early in chapter uh, Matthew 24 and Mark 13, and he starts giving these lists of things that would happen. And the first advent, he said, these are just the beginning of birth pangs. And you'll see them increase because birth pangs increase. That's what they do. They start off mild and then they get more intense. And what's happening right now around the world. What about the anti-Christian viewpoint? Is that increasing? On an unbelievable scale. On an unbelievable scale. Many people have taken the pandemic in countries around the world and they've used it to persecute Christians all the more. All the more. They don't want a meeting together. You can pray for our brothers and sisters in India, Africa, Burma, these are places we've heard from Nepal because every opportunity they get, they say churches can't meet or only five people can meet. And, oh, you can't go to the store. You can't walk past one store to get to another store because if you do that, you're going to get ticketed and fined if you do that. And especially if you're Christian and they know who the Christians are. They know who they are, usually because they're so nice to them. It's directly applicable to believers. Do we see things coming together? 
Church-age believers will see the reality of the events falling into place, the beginning of birth pangs. The doors of entry into the kingdom. Why make such a big deal out of this plural that is found there? Now, we have to look first. It's the way you do anything uh, analytically when you're studying the Bible. What is a door? And it's a means of access from one area to another area when open and a means of securing an area when it's closed. When we read Revelation 3 and we find that the Lord is the one who opens doors and nobody shuts and shuts doors and nobody opens. Okay? And we learn the importance of doors. The open doors say you can go back and forth. The closed doors mean you can't do that. Now the word door is used several times to denote um, access for evangelism. Paul in 1 Corinthians 16, 9 says, <clears throat> I'll remain in Ephesus till Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service had been opened to me, and there are a lot of adversaries. In 2 Corinthians 2, 12, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord. Colossians 4, devote yourself to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God may open for us a door for the word. Now, what do you want to pray for those people on the, on the back wall? What do you want to pray for missionaries worldwide? What's a good prayer? Lord, open the doors for them. Give them the courage to walk through. See, because... Just because the door's open doesn't mean you're going to walk through it. Give them the courage to walk through it. Provide for them while they are there. And return them safely. Those are prayers that evangelists want to hear. Because if they're like Paul, they want prayer for, for boldness rather than a prayer for safety. <clears throat> Jesus Christ is the door. Isn't it amazing where we find these words? You just start, you look these words up and you go, wow, what a picture the Holy Spirit is painted for us. What a mural he's put out there. He is the door into the sheepfold. And those who enter are saved. A sheepfold only had one door. It was made up of a little hedge, a ledge, three or four feet tall to keep the sheep in. Uh, they weren't known for jumping tall fences to get out. And so they kept them in. But what did, what did they have? One door into the sheepfold. And the shepherd laid down across the door. So the sheep didn't get out. He kept them in there. And Jesus is giving that analogy. We find this in John 10. He says, I am the door. And the context is the sheepfold. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved. It's pretty clear, isn't it? He uses a singular. I am the door. Later in the upper room, he told the disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am to the exclusion of all others. There are no others. He is the door into the sheepfold. And he shall go in and out and find pasture. He'll learn how to live life as a sheep. Since there is only one entrance to salvation, doors has to refer to something else. It has to refer to entrances into the overt kingdom of God because that's what the context is about. Tell us, when will be the sign of your coming? When will be the end of the age? At the end of the age of Israel began the millennial kingdom. What's the sign? And here it comes down to the fig tree all right, here's the sign, guys. You're going to see all these other little things, wars, famines, you'll see that. But this is the sign. In Mark 24, 33, and we, just, we read that a little bit earlier, there are different entrances into the kingdom. Since there's really only one ticket to enter, Jesus Christ, the, uh, the, since there's one ticket to enter, which is Jesus Christ, the doors have to refer to different times of entry. What's he talking about? The different doors. Now, the passage is cited there, Matthew 25. This is the uh, parables that go along uh, with this. And there's going to be a separation of the sheep and the goats. And the sheep are going to enter into the kingdom that has been prepared uh, for them. Huh. All the sheep are brought back. 
all the elect angels at the end of the age go up and gather all the elect from the four winds of the earth. All the unbelievers are brought back and the Lord separates the sheep and the goats. The goats end up in the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The sheep are left to inherit the kingdom. That's the second advent door. That identifies one door for us. Revelation 3, 8 and 20 and 4, 1 talk about some other the other door. And what is the other door? The first time of entry is the rapture. To become Christ's bride and return with him. And where would we find such a thing as that? We just follow the word door and let the scripture tell us. Revelation 4.1. Now what's just happened? In context, we're going to go to context here. Chapter 2 and chapter 3... <clears throat> are the seven eras of the church age. Chapter 4, verse 1. Behold, I, John, there was a door, where? Standing open for me in heaven. Hmm. There's the other door, isn't it? Church is gone. Okay. What happens to the church? We go to be with the groom. He comes and brings us to his father's house. Typical, traditional, oriental wedding. The groom comes, gets the bride, takes her to his father's house. There she's in preparation for seven days. We get seven years. I guess we take a lot more work than, than human brides do. <clears throat> but here we are. He comes and gets us, takes us to his father's house where there are many rooms, many mansions, John chapter 14, and we are prepared. Chapter 19, you don't see the church again in the book of Revelation till chapter 19. And there it is, the bride being having been prepared for her husband. And that's us. So the church is out of there. Church isn't mentioned during the tribulation. Now, people get saved right after the rapture, and that's why you have believers getting martyred. That's what happens. But they didn't make the rapture. They didn't make that, that list. They were in the age of Israel. They're part of that group of, of believers. Now, <clears throat> that's, behold, a door standing open in heaven. And John, see, was caught up into that picture into heaven, which is a picture of us being caught up into heaven. The second time of entry is the second advent, when those who survive the tribulation will enter. So you have two doors into the millennial kingdom. First one at the rapture, that's the church, that's us. We go to heaven first and return with Christ to earth, and we rule with him during the millennial kingdom. The second one is at the second advent. And that's for believers who have survived the tribulation. And they will be left to repopulate the earth during the millennial kingdom. That will include the 144,000. Plus a lot of others. There will be uh, obviously women there so they can repopulate the earth. That's the way it's, it's going to happen. But that's the, the time of the tribulation. Luke 13, one of the Lord's other prophetic comments says, in verse 22, He was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching, proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter by the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. You've heard all roads lead to heaven. Sorry, it's not the way it works. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open to us. And he will answer and say to you, I don't know where you are from. Then you'll begin to say, we ate, we drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. And he'll say, I tell you, I do not know where you're from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth there when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves being cast out. And they will come from east and west, north and south, and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some of the last will be first, and some who are first will be last. It's not that hard to unravel. 
when you understand what he, what he is saying here, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are looking at millennial kingdom. And one of these days, we'll get to sit down at this great feast and eat with them. And I'm looking forward to that. And they say, well, we probably won't even be close to them. Remember, we have eternity. We can <laughs> do a lot of this stuff and sit down and say, Abraham, what were you thinking about this Hagar thing? <laughs> it's just a lot of different things you'd like to run by Abraham. But what happens when the second advent hits? And he sets foot on the Mount of Olives. There are going to be believers and unbelievers left. And he is going to remove those unbelievers. And there will be some Jews who go all the way through the tribulation, see the mighty hand of God poured out on the whole earth and the whole planet, and see them protected. The Jewish nation protected during that time. And they're still going to say no. And they're not going to be permitted to participate in that millennial kingdom. It's a fitting discipline. What happened at the first advent? They wanted the Romans thrown out. And they wanted their power maintained. And Jesus was there to do something much more difficult. Which is to pay for their sins. The next time he comes, he will throw the Romans out and everybody else who does not belong there in Jerusalem. And he will establish his kingdom. They wanted the, the physical kingdom... And they wanted to get there without going through the spiritual kingdom. And the spiritual kingdom is after the pattern of Abraham who believed God and it was imputed to him as righteousness. See, they didn't want that. They thought their little, their offerings, they thought their, their uh, lamb offerings would pay for their sins and that they didn't need a Messiah. That's the Pharisees, the tribe of Judah especially. They could just sin and they bring that offering. They say, this is all we've got to do. Well, <clears throat> the time of entry, it's the second advent. So the first door is the rapture. And obviously, that's the door you want to go through. Otherwise, you get to go through the tribulation. The second door, though, will be fine to go through. But it's going to get locked. It's locked by unbelief. Some people will not be permitted. There won't be any unbelievers enter into the millennial kingdom. They will all be removed. The phrase that says, thus all Israel shall be saved, that's what it's talking about. Some people think because they're a Jew, they're saved. And many Jews think because they're a Jew, they're saved. It has nothing to do with, that, with the genetics. It's got everything to do with whether they are born again. Into, into Christ Jesus. And if they choose not to, they're the ones that's made that decision. Since the first door is the rapture, the fig tree will be observable before the rapture occurs. Now we've just gone through passages last week that point out quite clearly that this fig tree back in the land uh, will be observable and um, we'll have to be able to see it. Now, here is a, this next verse, verse 32, is a prophecy. This has probably been pulled apart and put back together and looked at and rehashed as much as any other passage that you find in the New Testament. Well, the Lord starts this off, truly, which is, uh, amen. That means, without question, dogmatically, this is what I'm saying to you. Amen, I say to you. Who's speaking? I as the Lord Jesus, right? King of kings. I say to you, this generation. This generation is Haganea, Alte. Alte is the word for this. Hey on the front of it is the. Ganea is a word for generation. This demonstrative pronoun is the one under discussion, the generation under discussion, after the fig tree has disappeared and been replanted. Okay, Because prophetically, he has taken us through a sequence of events, and he said, all right, this generation, the one of the fig tree. Okay, <clears throat> Generation 
We need to talk about that word a little bit. Genea is the word. It comes from genomai. We talked about genomai just a little bit ago, which means to come into existence. Hence, it's referring to a birth. It may be from one particular family, Genea, but it always refers to generations. Just like we had, you know, in our family, a lot of times we can get four generations together and we line up the four generations and take a picture of the generations. But we're still all, at this point in time, we are this generation at this point in time. This does not refer to the word race. Some people have said this should be translated, this race shall not pass away. But um, that's a different word. That's the word genos, G-E-N-O-S, instead of genea. Genos refers to race, like the Shemitic race that would be there, while genea refers to all the races that are alive at any point any given point in time. To try and translate this word as race, this race shall not pass away, is to infer that the Jews could possibly pass away. Uh, but that's not going to happen. Why? There's, would Satan like for that to happen? What does Satan, Satan want? He wants Iran to finish those nuclear weapons and drop them all on Israel. That still wouldn't get rid of all of them, would it? Because they're scattered throughout all of, all of the earth that are there. That's what he wants. He wants to annihilate the Jews. He's tried it multiple times in history. He tried it before the flood. He tried it before the, the, the promised seed of, of um, uh, the woman. He tried to contaminate the human race. He tried to extinguish the Jews more than once in their history, the, it's not going to happen. And this does not even imply that. He says this generation will not pass away. Now, we're taught in English not to use double negatives. Greek teaches use double negatives if you really want to emphasize something. And of course, I think that's the way English should be too. I like double negatives because they make the point. But this is... U, which is a strong negative, and may, which is a weak negative. And when it puts them together, it makes them really strong. And it's the word parekomai that it is attached to. The word, this word is used 29 times. Erkomai means to come or to go. I love that word. <laughs> you don't know if you're coming or going. Context tells you. It's the only way you figure out whether you're coming or going. Para means alongside. And hence it comes to mean to pass alongside or to pass away. It says, will not pass away until all these, all things take place. Genomai again, till they come into existence. What things? Israel back in the land. What things? The Lord's return at the second advent. What things? Signs in the heavens and the stars and all that. Those things that he's just talked about in the Olivet Discourse. This is a time tag. These time tags are so valuable when you find them in the Bible. And so many times people don't pay attention to them. The prophecy in Daniel 9, 24 to 27 told them how long it was going to be from the decree that went took place March 5th to 444 from Artaxerxes to rebuild the temple is going to take 490 years and they knew it but they forgot about it only two verses in the Old Testament deal with the timing of the first advent and that was one of them Daniel 9 27 the other is Genesis 49 10 which says the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes Shiloh is the one to whom it belongs, is what it means, and is the ruler, staff, and scepter. And it means that they have the right of capital punishment, and the Jews knew they'd lost it to the Romans. And when it's not, and they knew the prophecy was fulfilled, and it's recorded in 28 AD that woe to us, the scepters departed from Judah, and Messiah is not yet come. Then, two years later, he arrived on scene and they missed him now 
He says, until all these things take place. Here's a time tag we have to pay attention to. Now, the use of the word genea, meaning generation, is clearly seen in Matthew 1. We see some of the places that it's used there because in, it says there are 14 generations from Abraham to David. Okay, Abraham's born in 1950 B.C. And David uh, ruled from, actually from uh, 1040 to, uh, let's see, from 1000 to 970. So we have that time frame, 980 years, and it says 14 generations, so it says a generation's 14 years in that first group of, of people. Then there are 14 generations from David to the fall of southern, the southern kingdom. And that goes from 970 to 586. Now that establishes a 27.4 year generation. See what, where we're going here? Because, gosh, when I first heard this, I thought, well, a generation's 40 years. Jews were in the desert 40 years. We got 40 used a lot of times. 40 years. Okay, 1948-1988. Uh, take seven years off for the tribulation. The rapture should have happened in 1981. Guess what didn't happen in 1981? And then we thought, well, maybe a 50-year generation and a 70-year generation and an 80-year generation. When you start looking at the word generation and how it's used and stop trying to read in, you find out some important things. We know a generation can be 70 years, 27.4 years. I could go back into the Old Testament and they span into the hundreds of years. But the, there are 14 generations from the fall of the southern kingdom to Jesus Christ. That covers from 586 AD to 30, or BC to 33 AD. That's a 44 year generation. See the differentials there? The Bible is telling us generations have differing links on them. Now the context, the generation under consideration, is the one identified by the fig tree. Now, generations are used to describe the Exodus generation, for example. Did the Exodus generation have, it lasted 40 years wandering in the wilderness, did it have people of all ages? It did. A generation is marked by a given time frame and who's alive on the planet at that point in time. It's the only way to reasonably understand what these are saying. So Jesus is answering the question about the time of his return and the end of the age. After it is replanted, all the things of these chapters will occur before that generation is gone. When the fig tree comes back into the land. Now, most believe it was 1948. Some is an argument for 1973 when they retook Jerusalem. That may scan it out a little bit more. What we do know is we're getting close. Now that's what we can say. We're getting close. There's a limited time period between the return of the fig tree and the second advent. That tells us sometime within that time frame when Israel comes back, the second advent, not the, ra the rapture is only seven years removed, but this is prof prophecies of the second advent that he's talking about. The generation will have representatives alive at the second advent. And the length of that generation is indefinite. So somebody might have been born in 1948. They may live to be 100 years. People are getting older. Now, what it is saying is somebody alive, I believe 1948 is when the marker started. Somebody that was alive then will be alive at the second advent. That's what it's saying. That generation will not pass away into non-existence. That generation this will happen to. Since exactly seven years separate the rapture and the second advent, the generation's the same. There's no generation of the rapture and a generation of the second advent. They're the same generation. Instead of 14 generations of the church. And notice what Matthew did for us. From Abraham to David, 14 generations. From David to the 
southern kingdom, 14 generations. 14, 14, 14. And basically, if you go back before that, it's 14 before that too, getting from Noah into Abraham. And <clears throat> But what happens with the church? We're not really given 14 generations. We're not told how long it would be. We're told there would be seven eras of the church age. And <clears throat> these are seven distinct periods of history. Now, how do we know that those letters to the churches involve seven distinct periods of history? Why would we say that? Because if you're reading it literally and reading it to understand it, you're, he's writing to the people who are and the things that will come into existence. Now, people often overlook the first few verses of any book. And if you overlook the first few verses of any book of the New Testament especially, you can get out of context before you know it. Because, Revelation 1-3, Blessed are those who read and hear the words of the book of this prophecy singular. Not prophecies. Prophecy. When he closes the book out in chapter 22, he says the book of this prophecy singular. The whole book of Revelation is a prophecy. It has subparts to that prophecy that are prophecies inside themselves. But the whole book has to be viewed as a prophecy. And it's a prophecy that the Lord's going to return. It's what it's about. But here are seven eras of the church. There were seven churches located in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And that was a, a circuit that, that uh, John sent them to. It, they were hand-picked because of what they represented. And they represent their prophecy. Not just history. I've seen people take 2 and 3 and pull them out as only historical. And therefore have no significant significance. But they are prophetic. And you can track Ephesus from 70 to 100 AD. You can uh, track Smyrna. 10 periods of persecution. 10 days you shall be tested. Devil shall cast some of you into prison. And you track those through the 10 persecutions of the Christians under the Roman Empire. They ended with Diocletian in 313. You can go from 100 to 313 with the persecutions in Smyrna. And then you start going to Pergamum, Thyatira. And you can see 313 to 586 is the uh, time period when they started compromising with evil, leading into the Roman Catholicism. First Pope was elected in 586 A.D. And then from 586 to 1517, which is when Martin Luther walked out of the, con uh, out of the monastery. He didn't walk out of a convent. That would have, that would have been a... I don't know if it got him in trouble back then because that's why he walked out <laughs> because of the immorality in Rome. But here is a, a period of almost a thousand years where the church still had a thread of truth running through it. Just read, read the chapter carefully. Still had a thread of truth running through it. And then you have the letter of the church at Sardis that follows. That's 1517 to about uh, 1800. The fifth church, then you have the Philadelphia church from 1800 to 1900 roughly. The church of the open door. Isn't that, we've just been talking about doors. That's the church where the Lord opened the doors all over the world. Greatest evangelism in the history of the world in the 1800s. 1900 to the present, Laodicea. What happened to the church? We got lazy. That's what happened to the church. What happened? We got rich. What happened? We became lukewarm. That's what happened. That's where we are now. And it's not just here. I talk to pastors all over the world and they'll tell me that, that uh, a lot of their people are just putting in their time. They're not, they're not interested really in the Lord. They want to do just enough to keep Him off their backs. And that's not the way it should be. He says, <clears throat> the 14 generations of the church, instead of saying there are 14 generations, there are seven periods of history. The birth pangs that began before 70 A.D. are about to end 
with the emergence of the fig tree. And that's what he is telling us. And Israel back in the land is the final convergent condition to say that the rapture is now at hand. It's been drawing near in a temporal sense since the day of Pentecost. Since the Lord ascended to heaven. Every day gets closer to the rapture. But when the Lord is talking about drawing near, primarily what he's talking about is new information has been given or new people, places, things, and events have come into play. See, at uh, the first advent, when Revelation was written, there weren't 200 million people alive on the planet. But now there's a 200 million man army. Easily done. So for things to literally happen required other things to come into existence and now they have. There needed to be technology available that wasn't there in the first century in order for a literal fulfillment to occur. How can two witnesses lay in the streets of Jerusalem three and a half days and the whole world watch them be caught up? How can that happen? There was no technology back then. Now it's all come together. How close are we? I don't know. I'm, I'm ready to hear the trumpet sound myself. I'm, I'm ready to go. And it's not really because I just want to get out of here, I don't think. I hope not. Because we're supposed to be found doing what we're supposed to be doing when the trumpet blows. Let's not take it as a time to slack off, but instead a time to intensify. As it says, all the more as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word, for the prophetic word. Thank you for the encouragement that comes from it. Father, we know that uh, things are getting worse and worse around the world, but your word has told us that's what's going to happen. That is, things are going to go from bad to worse. And Father, we know it. It's no fun to watch it happen, to watch it happen to our country, to watch it happen in the world. But, Father, we know it is a part of your plan, and we do pray for those that are lost. We pray that there will be a new boldness that will be struck up in, in your family to go out and give the gospel, share the gospel. We pray they'll do it clearly. They'll do it accurately. They'll do it with confidence. And, Father, that they'll also live this transformed life so it would become uh, more and more reasonable to, to start following the God that we do. Thank you, Father, for this day. We give you all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.